Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we stimulate weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature from the 2007 archives, Retro Causality. But first up, here's news of brain dishes and puppeteer drones. Drones and VR together at last. Haptic puppets in the metaverse. As if it wasn't bad enough that you look like a badly drawn puppet in virtual reality, a team at Saarland University in Germany want to make virtual reality feel more real by literally moving your hands with strings pulled by little drones. The team called the project Haptic Puppet a drone-based force feedback interface which can exert multi-directional forces onto the human body, puppeteering the user. Haptic feedback is where you feel something in response to doing something, like when you pick something up, hold something, move something, or move yourself. At present in the metaverse, it's all visual and audio. And you don't even have legs. There is technology developing, like the Tesla suit, that gives you a small electric tingle to give the illusion of feeling something, but it's not yet very accurate. I tried one. There are also gloves with gyroscopes and robotic fingers to resist your movements and give your hands a feeling of doing something real in the virtual world. The team see the haptic puppet drone string marionette system as having application in exercising, physiotherapy, remote collaboration, to guide people with a vision impairment, and more convincing immersion in a virtual reality or augmented reality environment. One of the photos in the paper shows a woman dancing with a partner in virtual reality, where the little drones are pulling on her wrists, helping her feel the right place to put them for proper ballroom dancing form, even if she can't feel her partner's body. They suggest pushing a button in mid-air could have touch feedback through the drone and string puppeting system. When you're exercising in virtual reality, the breeze from the fans of the rotors could cool you. You could kick a virtual ball and feel the touch feedback as the drone pulls on your foot with its string. The team suggests this can be used for training, as the system lets a local user feel movements of a remote person so they can synchronise their actions like for proper tennis or golf swings, or to learn ballroom or Latin dancing. The team explain in the paper that in idle mode, the drones hover without interfering in your movements, and you wouldn't know they were there if not for the noise of the rotors. When active, the drones can move quickly, both to pull your strings to give you a feeling of touch feedback, and to physically get out of your way as you move. When they're giving you a feeling of touch, the drones can move in almost any direction, making them much more flexible than a desktop robot or feedback glove. The team were inspired by a previous project 
called the Drone Navigator that used the sound and breeze from the drone's rotors to give navigational guidance to people with a vision impairment, and Guide Copter, which had the drones also pull strings on people's fingers and forearm to guide them in the direction they wished to go. The team began by 3D printing rings for the strings from the drones to be attached to fingers, wrists, arms and ankles. But they stressed they could attach the strings anywhere, such as to users' chest, head or legs. Sadly, they were restricted to drone batteries that lasted at most 7 minutes, so you wouldn't want to move very far. They had 12 cameras on a frame to create a tracking space for their custom software, which used the Motive and NatNet software development kit. At present, they can only control one drone in their experimental rig, but their vision is to have several in the future. The limitations they see with their system of drones and strings puppeteering of people are drone oscillation and drifting, as well as the need to make sure that the strings don't get tangled. The drone blades never touch anyone, and the drones don't dive into people or fall onto people. They suggest they could use nets or cages to keep the drones away from people. Or they may use the new bladeless Zerone drones developed in Japan. The Zerone bladeless indoor drones are a helium blimp driven by the wind from an ultrasonic piezoelectric vibrator, like the speakers in singing Christmas cards. The Zerone drones are quiet and can float for weeks. Of course, the blimps are bigger than the quadcopter drones, and it's not clear how much force they can apply to the strings for touch feedback. The papers were titled Haptic Puppet, a Kinesthetic Mid-Air Multi-Directional Force Feedback Drone-Based Interface, and Zerone, Safety Drone with Blade-Free Propulsion. Both were published in the Proceedings of the Association for Computing Machinery. Dishpong, a research team from Cortical Labs, the University of Melbourne and Monash University in Australia, with University College London in the UK, have trained dishes with a single layer of mouse or human neurons growing on an electrode grid to play Pong, the original arcade video game of table tennis, released in 1972. Pong involves hitting a moving dot, the ball, with a small line, the paddle, in two dimensions. They call their mini-brain system Dishbrain. Dishbrain learned to play the video game in just five minutes of stimulation to see the game, with feedback to tell it when it hit or missed the ball. The researchers are aiming for what they call biological synthetic intelligence, where the system must learn how external states from its signals about the world influence internal states, and how internal states influence external states in the world through action. The system must also work out from its sensory signals when it should adopt a particular activity and how its actions will influence the environment. The researchers developed custom software to send electric signals about a simulated Pong game environment and feedback about the results of electric signals sent by the dish brain as actions in that environment. Basically, it could move the paddle up and down to hit the ball. They're using a theory of intelligence called the free energy principle, which says that the gap between the predictions of a neural network's model of the world and actually observed sensations can be minimised either by learning more accurate beliefs about what can happen in the environment, 
to make predictions more like their sensations, or by acting on the environment to make sensations conform to its predictions. Either by learning more accurate beliefs about what can happen in the environment to make its predictions more like what it actually experiences, or by acting on the environment to make its experiences conform to its predictions. So their intention in teaching a dish of neurons to play an old arcade game is to develop a system that allows for neural cultured cells to be embodied in a simulated game world, where they can test whether these cells are capable of engaging in goal-directed learning in a dynamic environment, and also they hope to learn something about the foundations of intelligence. If the free energy principle is true, then surprises are important in stimulating learning. So, the free energy principle is a way to explain the motivation of the dish brain to learn the game, as a way to reduce the unpredictable signals it received. Eight electrodes gave the cortical cells in the dish brain a perception of the Pong screen, while motor neurons had their signals monitored to move the paddle on the screen. If the dish's paddle missed the ball, it was given an unpredictable signal input, and then the ball would enter the screen again from a new, random direction. If the dish brain was successful in hitting the ball with the paddle, then a predictable signal was sent before the game continued predictably. Hopefully the unpredictable signals are just irritating and not painful, or this starts to sound like a reward and punishment system. They carefully made sure that the input signals of where the paddle and ball are located on the screen were kept separate from the readings of what the motor neurons were telling the paddle to do, so that it really was the dish brain controlling the paddle, and not just a short circuit between the signals for where the ball is telling the paddle to move there. They split the motor regions so that signals from one region move the paddle up, and signals from the other region move the paddle down. The neural network of the dish brain had to work out for itself how to make this happen based on its inputs. In the first experiment, the location of the stimulation corresponded to the position of the ball up and down. For the second experiment, they changed the strength of the signals to account for how the cells acted. In the third experiment, they changed the signal encoding to be more like what is found in a mouse's brain. Overall, they found that increasing the amount of sensory information improved performance. As controls, the researchers compared their dish brain's performance at playing Pong with brain cell cultures that had control of the paddle but no information about the environment. A dish full of media but no neurons, a dish of cells that weren't neurons, and a computer controlling the paddle randomly. Only the mouse and human dish brains, with both perceptions and control of the paddle, got better at the game as they spent more time. However, at first the mouse cell cultures performed better than the human cell cultures at playing Pong, but over time the human dish brain performed better than the mouse dish brain. The dish brains weren't able to keep their skills much between games, as neither the cortical cells nor the motor neurons have much in the way of memory. The researchers expect that if they grow neurons more specialised for memory, alongside the cortical and motor neurons, then perhaps the dish brains can remember the skills they learn for longer. A single layer of brain cells in a dish given perceptions of the world by electrodes and acting in the world by electrodes was able to learn to play Pong in just five minutes, as long as it was given predictable signals when it hit the ball 
and random signals when it missed the ball. The mouse dish brain learned to hit the ball faster, but the human dish brain played better than the mouse dish brain after a few minutes more playtime. They haven't yet gotten two dish brains to play against each other. I wonder if they can learn to drive cars in traffic. The paper was titled In Vitro Neurons Learn and Exhibit Sentience When Embodied in a Simulated Game World and was published in the journal Neuron. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Here's Tilly Berlin in 2007 introducing Tim Baines talking about retrocausality. Now we're all quite happy with the idea that the past affects the future. The spicy burrito I had for dinner last night can influence the functioning of my digestive tract today, to pick one just random example. But turn that around and ask whether the future can influence the past. Whether, say, your dodgy chat-up line in the pub tonight can send a temporal influence to upset your confidence in yesterday's board meeting. Suddenly, people start calling you a wacko. Diffusion's occasional Canberra correspondent, Tim Baines, isn't afraid of being called a wacko. Tim's up next with a story about the weird world of quantum reality and retro-causality. Something of a bit of a revelation in the front cover of New Scientist was a story about retro-causality. What's done is done, right? Hmm, maybe not if you're a tiny little quantum particle. And a bit of an explanation of that is coming up right now. Most of the stuff uh, you see around, sorry, around you, most science, can be explained with the a certain kind of understanding, a logic that fits well in with our sense of reason and analogies in our everyday lives and experiences. Quantum mechanics, it seems, doesn't want to play ball. Einstein didn't like it, Schrodinger didn't like it, didn't like the way it dealt with uncertainties rather than certainties, even though he invented the wave equation and Feynman suggested that no one really understood it unless it really disturbed them. Now, at a recent uh, meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, yet another brain-twisting property of tiny particles has been suggested in an experiment proposed by John Kramer. The idea is to show whether the past lives of particles depended on their present or future. And I did say that right, the future affecting the past. This is another can of theoretical worms called retrocausality. Time travelling in quantum mechanics is not as new as you might think. Feynman demonstrated that you could look at an antiparticle as if it was a particle, just travelling backwards through time. And he and John Wheeler developed a whole theory of how electromagnetic waves could move forwards or backwards in time. The new idea is that this happens between entangled pairs of particles and that you can catch them in the act of communicating backwards in time. The new experiment hinges on two key phenomena in quantum mechanics – entanglement and wave-particle duality. So here goes for a quick explanation of them. First, entanglement. Certain particles are born at the same time. They're twins, but being fundamental components of the universe, they have to abide by certain rules like conservation of mass and energy, and in quantum mechanics, there's also conservation of spin. Won't tell you any more about that, just that's what it's got to be. All right, One twin will be spin up and one spin down. The point about entanglement 
is that both particles are in an undetermined state until you observe them. You just can't know which one is which until you observe them. That's just what they are. And the moment you definitely see the properties of one, then the possibilities for the other collapse into being the opposite. The idea that this happens instantaneously, no matter where the particles are in the universe, is what really got up Einstein's nose, because it seemed to completely ignore the restrictions on the speed of light, instantaneous information transfer. What John Kramer is proposing with retrocausality goes even further and says not only can this happen instantaneously, but it can occur backwards through time. The other quantum phenomena you need to know about is wave-particle duality. Sounds impressive, huh? Well, this is where particles can apparently have wave-like properties, wave-like phenomena, and vice versa. Waves, wave energy like light, has particle-like properties. The classic example of this is light, which exhibits wave-like effects such as diffraction and interference, but it can also be described with photons, particles of light energy. The classic experiment to test this is uh, where you allow light to be shone through a barrier with just two holes where the light can get through. The pattern you'd see on the other side would show very wave-like properties of interference. There would be light and dark areas where the waves of light interfered constructively or destructively. What quantum mechanics experiments have shown is that if you just allowed one photon of light at a time through this setup, you still see the interference. But if you observe the photon of light just as it passes through either of the two holes, then you don't observe the interference. You observe it as a particle and stops acting like a wave, and you don't see the interference pattern. Now, I can see this is hurting some people's brains, and that's entirely fair. Wave-particle duality is something I... You just... There isn't an intuitive thing for it, I don't think. But anyway, that's wave-particle duality. So to retro-causality. The experiment they want to do goes like this. A laser shines on a, on a special crystal, which produces a pair of photons, those entangled particles, entangled twins. Each photon of light heads off on its merry way, but before they go too far, they meet... This, this experiment with the barrier with two holes. All right. Now, you would say that both photons will pass through the holes in each of their respective barriers and do the whole wave-like interference thing, unless you happen to spy on one of them. Then you'd notice it was a particle, see that it had a certain mass and spin and whatever, and therefore you'd know the properties of the other one simultaneously. But here's the tricky bit with this setup. One photon is allowed to go through through the barrier of the two holes unnoticed until it's projected onto a screen. But the other is directed down several kilometres of optic fibre. So you can't observe it until later. The $64 million question is, will you be able to look at the later photon and change the way the first behaved on the projection screen? Could you change it from producing interference patterns like a wave to just piling up like a whole bunch of particles, like particles? Now, like many things uh, that happen on the quantum scale, it's pretty unlikely the results of this will actually mean anything for us up here on the big scale of real life. In fact, personally, I mean, this, this experiment is a bit open. The theory doesn't have much to say on this, except that some string theories uh, actually would be helped by things like retrocausality. But one possibility is that seeing the first photon that hits the screen, uh, notice that is an observation and therefore it will determine what happens to the photon coming through the kilometres of optic fibre, and so uh, retrocausality doesn't happen. It, it, we don't know. It's an interesting experiment. It's open. But it's an interesting thought that perhaps we could maybe derive a technology from this and, I don't know, reverse a few of those fatal faux pas of our lives. 
That was Tim Baines, Diffusion's Canberra correspondent, on the strange temporality of quantum physics. I certainly have a few faux pas to fix if anyone needs a willing subject. Thank you, Tim Baines and Tilly Berlin. And finally, from 2007, here's Mark West introducing a panel discussion about gifts to avoid for Christmas. Now, did you get socks and underwear again for Christmas? Well, you'll be thanking your lucky stars that you didn't get some of the presents we're just about to talk about. Now, we've got a bit of a panel discussion here on the 10 most fatal toys of the 20th century. And joining me will be Lachlan Watmore, Ian Wolfe, Catherine Behag and Sasha Steltzer. Ian, do you want to kick us off? Sure. This is from Radar Magazine. For example, there's the Snack Time Cabbage Patch Dolls, which said, Feed me on the packaging for the 1996 Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kid. What could possibly go wrong with a doll that has a motorised mouth with teeth? (laughs) Where do you buy this? Sounds like something you'd be buying down at King's Cross, actually. (laughs) With teeth? (laughs) Whatever you like. A local toy shop. Now, they would stop chewing when snack time was done. They promised. And then they chomped your child's finger off. There's no mechanism to turn them off should any trouble arise. And it was only a matter of time before some long blonde hair got caught in the doll's rabid jaws. After 35 fingers and ponytails fell victim, the snack time kids were removed from retail shelves forever and 500,000 customers were offered a full $40 refund. I've got another one over here. It's a Barbie doll. But the catch is it's on a rocket that flies around and it's been known to cause great pain to the, the kids that got it for Christmas in 1994. The injuries included scratched corneas, temporary blindness... Mild concussions, broken ribs and teeth, and facial lacerations that required stitches. That's fantastic. I'm imagining mm. the kids in 1994 getting these gifts and losing their eyes. And then a couple of years later, when the parents think, oh, you've grown into Cabbage Patch dolls now, and you're getting these things to chew your fingers off. This is fantastic. I'm glad I wasn't a girl in the early 90s. Well, give, that, give that a couple more years, and, of course, they'll be ready for uh, things on wheels like bikes and trikes, of course. Uh, the Fisher-Price Power Wheels motorcycle is one of those toys that kids salivate over for years. Of course, everyone wants a powered bike or something. Um, didn't always give a smooth ride. Eager youngsters who gunned the throttle for it often stayed that it, found that it stayed gunned. The uh, uh, carburetor was stuck. The butterfly in the carburetor was obviously stuck open, this thing being a petrol-powered yeah. petrol thing. Hey, I know about these things. Anyway, presumably the child on the motorcycle was then taken on a hellish intestine-twisting scream ride, and at one point he or she would have to face choices such, uh, unthinkable except in an evil Knievel meets Knight Rider crossover episode, like, you know, am I going to make Snake River Canyon with this sort of thing? <laughs> Is it sentient? Can it be reasoned with? That sort of Will thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Well, I think these kids are lucky they weren't born in the 60s. In 1964, Mattel released the Creepy Crawly Thingmaker, Nothing says fun like using an open 150-degree hot plate to create molten, rubbery insects that you can throw at your little sister while trying to avoid setting your house on fire. So not only was this hot plate searing 150 degrees, but um, kids that survived the sort of serious injury or disfigurement could then eat their creation, however it was toxic as well. So... (laughs) Back in the 50s, Gilbert introduced his Uranium-238 Atomic Energy Lab, which is a radioactive learning set. He had a dream that nuclear power could capture the imaginations of children everywhere. And for a mere 4950, the kit came complete with very low-level radioactive sources, a Geiger counter, a Wilson cloud chamber, so you could see where the paths 
you see where the particles went, a spin theroscope to see live radioactive disintegration, four samples of uranium-bearing ores, <laughs> and an electroscope to measure the radioactivity. And it even came with a Learn How Dagwood Splits the Atom comic book, written by the director of the Manhattan Project. If you go to United Nuclear on the net, you can still buy kits like this, only safer. So another one is mini hammocks from Easy Sales. And they sound innocent enough. Mini hammocks sound cool. (laughs) They do sound cool for for babies. Um, In (laughs) August 1996, the product resulted in the fatal and near-fatal asphyxiation of dozens of kids aged 5 to 17. Easy recalled 3 million of them. Among the banned Easy products were Hangouts baby hammocks woven from thin cotton and nylon, nylon strings. Lawn darts, or jarts, were massive weighted spears. You threw them. They stuck where they landed. If they happened to land in your skull, well, then you should have moved. During their brief reign in the 1980s suburbia, jarts racked up 6,700 injuries and four deaths. No one's known to have used jarts for their intended purpose. Shouldn't be surprising, then, that an accident involving a wayward spear and a semi-permeable head of a seven-year-old resulted in the toys being banned from the market in 1988. (laughs) That is so cool. I thought that samurai sword my mum gave me was dangerous. (laughs) Thank you to Mark West, Lachlan Watmore, Sasha Stelzer and Catherine Behag. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley. 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.